Good morning, church. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Don Miller. I'm one of the elders here at Harvest Decatur. Uh, it's my privilege to bring the, I guess, the last message, Sunday message, uh, in 2023. And as I said, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. <clears throat> so if you haven't already done so, turn, into your, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 or to flip to it on your favorite listening or reading device. Uh, whatever that you're carrying uh, with you. Uh, as we go ahead and move into, uh, into the sermon this morning, I want to take just a quick moment and go before the throne in prayer. So pray with me if you would. Father, as we enter into this time of study, we need you to provide us with the eyes to see and ears to hear your word. I pray your spirit would guide our thinking this morning, Lord, and that the things that so easily would distract us through a holiday season like we are in, would be put aside and that we, put, we could focus our thoughts on you. We pray, Lord, that we will go close, closer to you because of the hearing of your word this morning, the teaching that, is, that comes, Lord. We pray that your word would pierce our hearts and cause us to better bring glory to you. As I speak this morning, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So, amen. So, church, um, it's true that all of us have need of a thermometer. Uh, if you went outside yesterday morning, you would see a pretty significant difference in the temperature out there yesterday uh, from this morning. Um, you, you may ask yourself, when was the last time that I did use a thermometer? And in doing so, you, you would probably think, oh, well, the last time I used something was I went to my smartphone or I asked Alexa what the uh, temperature was outside. And others, <clears throat> excuse me, if you might recall that the last time that I used, I suspected that a thermometer was when I suspected that a child was ill. Um, well, you know, over the years, there have been various liquids used in inside a standard thermometer. Some of you might recall the silver material inside the old mercury thermometers. Um, many of you, if not, well, probably all of us have seen the red inside the thermometer. You know, that's an alcohol-based uh, liquid. Uh, you know, there are other liquids that can go inside the, a thermometer like that, but each one of those thermometers is calibrated to the liquid that's inside, whether it be an industrial liquid or the alcohol or, or mercury. Uh, you know, thermometer is that little device that tells us what the temperature is um, in the environment that is surrounding it. The operation's pretty simple. You know, as the temperature goes up, the liquid inside moves a little bit faster. It starts to warm up. The liquid warms up. Warms up. The molecules move a little faster, and as a result of that, you see a rise in the temperature of the thermometer. And whenever, conversely, whenever it cools, the molecules slow down, and the you see a decrease in the temperature of the thermometer. Um, it's pretty standard, but you know, it's also true that you know we know people who live their lives as thermometers. You know, things in their lives get a little bit out of order and the pressures of life kick in and the, the motion of their liquid uh, begin to increase and we see a change in behavior. We see more agitation. We see people who become more irritable. They pace, they get ants in their pants, they can't sit still. You've, you probably have somebody in mind. Uh, unfortunately, 
we all have times and, and events that happen in our lives that cause us to be a little bit like a thermometer. Um, but remember, a thermometer doesn't change anything. A thermometer just simply measures what's happening in the environment around us. Um, we also know that we have need of thermostats. You know, you recall a thermostat, if you have a furnace in your home and you enjoy a nice, steady 68 degrees year-round inside, you have use of a thermostat. If you drove here this morning and you have a comfortable air temperature in your car, you also used a thermostat this morning. Even if you washed dishes in hot soapy water last night or took a hot shower this morning, you used a thermostat. Thermostat's that little device that is commonly used to send signals to open or close switches, turn things on and off, and some thermostats even open slowly and close slowly as the temperature slowly increases and decreases around them. Well, we're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul this morning. Paul was a thermostat. So as we move through this, uh, I want you to be thinking about how the, the events of his life were up and down, and yet he was steady. Um, you know, was he burdened? Absolutely he was burdened. Was he perfect? No, he wasn't perfect. But in the end, he was a thermostat. Instead of having the spiritual ups and downs, uh, as circumstances changed around him, he went steadily on. So uh, today's scripture is found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was governed by Roman laws, subject to Roman rule. And the Philippian church was planted by Paul, and we can read that in Acts chapter 16. Um, he did it on his second missionary journey. And after planting the church, Paul moved on to Thessalonica. Uh, we see in Paul's second letter in the Corinthian church where Paul tells the brothers at Corinth, uh, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, which indicates that the Philippian church has supported Paul in his journey. And we also see in our text today that the Philippian Philippian believers through Epaphroditus had sent uh, support to Paul. So there was a deep love between Paul and this church at Philippi, as you can imagine. In fact, during his third missionary journey on his way to Corinth, uh, to and frankly from Corinth, Paul had stopped to fellowship with the believers um, uh, at Philippi. Uh, there was certainly that love relationship between, between Paul and this church. You know, and as we approach the text, I, I want to take a quick survey of Philippians as putting the text of, of Philippians 4 into action in our lives, um, to put it simply, is dependent on a basic understanding of, of what's happening in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So I want to do that. In Philippians chapter 1, it centers on a single-mindedness single um, that a Christian is to have in furthering the gospel. Paul, uh, after being, is writing this uh, to the Philippian church uh, after being illegally arrested, arrested and uh, he's under house arrest in Rome. He doesn't complain in his first chapter about being arrested. In fact, what he does is he mentions Christ and the gospel over 20 times in chapter 1 alone. So his single-mindedness is on the gospel and Jesus Christ. And then in Philippians chapter 2, we learn about a submissive-mindedness and a, how a humble mind focused on honoring Christ 
is key to address life issues where circumstances, people, and pride keep us from the peace and joy that's intended for believers. Uh, Brother Ryan preached an entire series on joy from Philippians um, two years ago or 18 months or so ago. Um, and uh, Philippians chapter 2 is key to that. You know, and Paul uses the example of Christ and himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus to convey that message of submissive-mindedness to us and humility. And then in chapter 3, the word speaks of having a spiritual-mindedness in which Paul's letter to the Philippians focused on those great, long-term, everlasting Christian topics <clears throat> of, such as the past work of salvation, the present-day work of sanctification, and uh, our future glorification when this life is over and all of us are called into account. I pray that none of us fall short on that day. Um, that's why we do what we do. We fellowship with one another and believers to give ourselves, um, um, encourage ourselves and each other in the Lord. And now we find ourselves in chapter 4 where there's a general focus on having a secure mind. And that leads me to the topic of today's message, which is being content in the new year. You know, I want to address things like, what does it take to have that secure mind? What does it mean to be content? Uh, what does it take to be content? Um, you know, we have a roadmap that's outlined here uh, in the Scripture. So let's start by looking at uh, the Scripture in verse 10 where Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. <coughs> Ten years had passed between the time that the church at Philippi had been established and the time of Paul's arrest. You know, if we were to read Acts 17 and 18, we would see that the church at Philippi had supported Paul as he traveled through Thessalonica uh, and Berea in Macedonia, in Macedonia, as well as when he went to the city of Athens and, and Corinth. Uh, and yet, here, Paul says, at length, you, at, at length you have revived your concern for me, we get the sense that it's been some time since Paul has heard from the church at Philippi. Scripture doesn't really tell us, give us a definitive reason why, but it leads me to the first point, um, and that is that a content person, and Paul is that content person, is confident in God's providence. You know, here the Philippian church has sent, to, sent Epaphroditus with, Paul to, to, with a gift to Paul, during his imprisonment by the Romans. Uh, this had to be, I mean, just imagine you know, yourself being in the situation that Paul found himself. It had to be a very trying time in Paul's life. He was confined to a small apartment, watched 24 hours a day by a, a Roman guard, unable to minister freely, unable to work for wages. He was completely dependent on the generosity of, of friends and others. Uh, and he's likely... Uh, surviving on a very bare subsistence level. You know, we see in this passage that Paul is saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And while Paul was no doubt grateful for the gift, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. You know, he's thanking God for the love of the people in the Philippian church for the love of the people in the Philippian church and not primarily for the gift. 
And he's no doubt grateful. No, no doubt he would be grateful. His comments went first to the overflowing joy that came from them renewing their concern for him and for the providence of God leading to that gift. You know, providence is, is key here. You know, in Latin, providence comes from two different words. First one meaning pro, uh, means before, and video meaning to see. So providence here simply means God sees to it beforehand. It doesn't mean that God only knows about it beforehand. It means that God is working in advance proactively to arrange circumstances and situations for fulfilling his purposes. You know, we recall the story of Joseph and his brothers um, in Genesis. Joseph's brothers had you know, envied him so much that they sold him into slavery at the ripe old age of 17. Uh, we know the story. You know, God revealed to Joseph that seven years of famine uh, were coming after seven years of plenty. And God did that through Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And through, through that, Joseph was elevated through that interpretation uh, you know, Joseph was um, elevated to the position of second ruler in Egypt. After 20 years of separation, Joseph and his brothers were reconnected, and they understood then what God had been doing. 20 years later, Joseph, in fact, Joseph told them in Genesis 45, 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph's words here strike the same tone as Abraham when Abraham called God Jehovah-Jireh, meaning the Lord will see to it. You know, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, intending evil against Joseph, but God intended it for good. You know, we could also point to Esther and Mordecai, um, as Mordecai reminded her that God had placed her in a position to save Israel. Whenever uh, he sent word to her saying, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know, through Paul's imprisonment, God had caused the church at Philippi to revive their concern for Paul at the very time when Paul needed their love the most. And Paul quickly recognizes this as the providence of God. You know, that providence being God's hand ruling over and overruling the affairs of life. Um, and so God continues to do the same for us today. You and I travel through life and then something happens. A loved one gets sick and dies. A child's in a tragic accident. Uh, we lose a job. A marriage falls apart. A loved one goes astray. The list goes on and on. Things happen in our lives that, that do that. Uh, no, we may not be sold into slavery as Joseph was, and we may not be put in positions of royalty to save a nation but God, in his sovereignty, in his providence, is working well in advance to prepare those of us who love him and are called according to his purpose to face the challenges that we do face. And those challenges challenge contentment in us. And that contentment is knowing that the Lord goes on ahead of us. His sheep follow him because they know his voice. So... I want to go ahead and move into our second point this morning. <clears throat> and then our second point today is a content person is satisfied with little. I want us to see that Paul was very quick in the second half of verse 10 to make sure to let them know that he was not complaining. 
He quickly acknowledged their concern, and while we don't know why the church had no opportunity, uh, he tells them that he knows that's the case. You know, take a, take a quick look at the second half of the verse, but you had no opportunity. The end of verse 10 may seem a bit cryptic with the, when it says you had no opportunity, but the way it's worded, um, remember that travel at this time in history took weeks and perhaps months when traveling from city to city. So it's quite likely, in fact, probable that they just simply lost track of him because of the time that, that was elapsing, the touch points. And once he was arrested, it's likely that he was in one spot long enough that they were able, they heard word and were able to track him down at that point. You know, at the beginning of verse 11, Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Uh, He's clarifying for the Philippian church that in case they misunderstood, he was thanking them not from a position of want or discontent. Uh, Yes, life was tough. He was in prison. He was chained to a Roman guard. Uh, But he was not discontent. His circumstances did not affect his contentment. His contentment came from someplace else. You know, on the surface, it seems pretty straightforward. Paul directly says, in whatever situation, I am to be content. If you were to apply that to our lives, you know, he directly says, I'm to be content. Indirectly, he tells you and I, Don, you don't need that Mercedes to drive. You don't need that pool to swim in. You don't need to even own a home. You don't need that perfect job in order to be content. No, what he says is, whatever my situation I am in, I'm content. The text leads us to understand that this is not a natural propensity for us to be content. You know, the text, um, you know, Paul says here, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Contentment comes from something much deeper. It is something that is learned. Just, it's not part of us. You know, our natural state is something else than content. You know, it's like seeds on the soil. You know, it barely takes any effort on our part, and the seeds of our sinful nature begin to grow. You know, thorns shoot up, thistles sprout, weeds explode. You know, very little effort on our part to make that happen. You know, we were talking in small group this summer about some, a flower called the Texas Blue Bonnet. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Texas Blue Bonnet. It's very pretty. Um, well, this fall, I planted over 250 Texas Blue Bonnet seeds in my flower garden. You know, and the, you know, I researched the seed, bought the seed, I prepared the soil, turned it over, um, you know, killed the weeds, and then I sowed the seeds, raked it in, and got it all set for the spring. And this spring, as the seeds sprout and the flowers begin to grow, I'll tend to them. I'll pluck the weeds out as they come, and the result will be a beautiful display for anyone who wants to come close enough to see. Contentment is like those blue bonnets. It's a precious flower that when the weeds of discontent, covetousness, murmuring, grumbling come along, they must be removed. The gardener must tend to the garden. Paul says, I have learned to be content. He could have also stated it saying, I've not always been content, but my garden has been plowed, my heart has been cultivated, and I have learned. But we need to ask ourselves, how does that cultivation occur? 
in our lives. Most of us learned, learned early on that when we're faced with trouble, we ought to run to the Savior, and indeed we should, no doubt. I think, the old, I think of the old hymn titled, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, you know, where the lyric goes, have we trials and temptations, is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged, take it to the Lord in prayer. You know, trials come our way in many forms. A single mom trying to raise young children, a widower whose life has been changed in a moment, a man trying to provide for his family who comes home from job hunting and still has to tell his wife there's nothing yet, no work yet. Those are trials. And yes, when difficulties come, it's as the scripture says here, we are brought low. It becomes less intimidating to run to the Savior in that, in that circumstance. When things spiral out of control in our lives, we turn to the, the sovereign king of the universe. We've heard story after story after story of how the Savior has calmed the storms, uh, dealt with crises at wedding ceremonies, running out of wine. We've seen him heal the infirmities of lepers, the deaf, the blind. Uh, you know, these stories are encouraging to us for our troubled days. We all have those difficult times in life that we deal with. And if you haven't yet, you will. But not nearly as many of us have figured out how to abound. You know, when we abound in prosperity, men hold us in high regard, and it's easy to be content at that point. But how do I live when things in my life you know, are prosperous? You know, when men honor me, it's, it's very easy to be content. But when accusations come our way, when our character is questioned, when people talk about us when we walk by, it requires tough gospel work to be able to endure that with patience and cheerfulness. When we're increasing and growing in rank and stature, and honor and human esteem, it's easy to be content. But when we have to say, as John the Baptist said, I must decrease, it's not easy to avoid envy and jealousy when somebody gets promoted above you. But we have to be able to say, I must decrease. You know, there's something noble in the heart of a man who can lay down all of those honors Will, as willingly as he took him up. So I would say prosperity has had more negative effects on believers than adversity has. You know, those who find themselves prosperous are in danger of becoming dependent on their wealth rather than on their Lord. Recall the warning to those who find themselves in this state from Revelations 3.17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And that's a significant warning for us not to go complacent in face. That was to the church at Laodicea. None of us have learned what Paul knew. If we're not as ready to glorify Christ through shame, disgrace, and reproach as we are by honoring him uh, when we were being honored and esteemed by men. You know, we must be ready to give up everything for him. We must be willing to go downwards so that Christ may ascend upwards. You know, in that 
descent, gracefully handling a descent, Christ is lifted up. You know, when we murmur, we grumble, we complain that we got passed over, whatever the case might be, you know, we're pulling Christ down. We're not elevating him to the throne that he belongs on. You know, John MacArthur, I like the way John MacArthur deals with this um, in his commentary when he says, Paul knew that the chief end of man is not to have his needs met, but to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's it's not an easy thing. So uh, the next point in our text comes from slide three. Uh, or I'm sorry, point three is contempt person is independent from our circumstances. Paul learned the secret of contentment came through trial and testing. Paul was a learned man. Many of you hearing this word are learned people as well. Um, But his book learning and study did not provide contentment. It provided knowledge, lots of knowledge. uh, But contentment cannot be shortcut with book learning. It's through life's trials that we learn contentment, who those are willing to be trained by them. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul had learned the, you know, with the how to be brought low and how to abound, He learned to experience contentment in the extremes of deprivation from hunger and homelessness uh, to being in rags, to beatings, to labor and exhaustion and even intense humiliation. You know, we can read in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27, a direct commentary from Paul where he talks about the difficulties that he's undergone. The beatings, the illness, the stoning, the shipwrecks, the dangers, the work, you know, all of it. It's all there. And yet he says, I know how to be brought low, and how to abound. It's because he can do that because his view of life is through the sovereignty of God and the deity of Christ Jesus. When he uses the phrase, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound, he's also saying, I know how to share in Christ's humility. And I know how to share in his riches. Paul uses the word secret here in the text which is, which is interesting um, because there would have been an undertone to the reader of the day that there's an initiation into some secret group going on. Uh, the point he's making is that you know, Christian contentment can only be learned from the inside by those who are in Christ. And it's a quiet secret known and cherished by very few. Paul learned it. Have you? We can. You know, the picture that we get from this learning is a clear picture of sanctification. You know, where God continues to move us trial by trial, hour by hour, day by day, and from 2023 into 2024 to be closer to himself as we stand firm and remain steadfast in him. This brings me to the next point in our text. Point four is that a content person is strengthened by divine power. You know, a few years back, I had an occasion to, at work, 
to specify some, some the procurement of some trees. Uh, you know, it was a variety of different trees. It was restoring a, a, a wetland with some, some uh, hardwoods. Um, and there were oak, there were maple, cypress, locust, swamp oak. I think there were some black walnuts. There's a variety of different trees, many different species. I was restoring some forest uh, that had been removed decades before. And, you know, if you go out and look for trees to purchase, you have any idea how many places there are that you can buy trees? They're everywhere. Um, all of them talked about the beauty of this adult tree. Well, I'm not planting adult trees. I'm planting little trees that I want to grow to big trees, right? So the, the, the company that I ended up using is a tree that, or is the company that didn't talk about the adult tree. It talked about what they did to prepare the root system to make it strong, make it solid, make it so when I put it in the ground, it grows. You know, the most important part of the tree is the part that man can't see. It's the part under the earth. It's the part that God can see. It's a metaphor for our Christian life. God sees it, not man. God sees us. He sees what's on the inside. We don't necessarily see. Sometimes we see the fruit of what's happening. But if you, if you and I are not like the tree, daily drawing from the nutrients, from the deep resources of God's faith, then we fail against, we're going to fail against the pressures of life. You know, Paul depended on the power of God at work in his life. You and I should be doing the, the exact same thing. You know, verse 13 says, I can do all things who through him who strengthens me. To be sure, this, this is a verse that's speaking of great power, divine power associated to those of us who are a child of God, power associated with daily drawing from those nutrients of that deep relationship that we're to have with him. You know, however, this particular scripture is also arguably one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. You know, take... People take it, and athletes use it everywhere as an ins- as a as a, an inspiration to become superhuman. You know, they put it above weight benches as they're lifting, and they put it on. You know, people put it on the corner of their mirrors um, to remind them that they are overcomers in all things. Well, that's taking the scripture out of context. It needs to be controlled by what Paul is talking about. Uh, in the scripture, and he's not discussing here superhuman feats of athleticism or facing the issues of life under his own strength. He's describing his life circumstances in whatever extreme that he may be finding himself in, saying, I can be content. He's saying, whether I am wealthy or poor, healthy or sick, struggling to share the gospel, um, or healthier or sick, or struggling to share the gospel with those who don't want to hear it, or whether I'm locked up in prison. He says, I can do anything God asks me to do with the help of the one who lives in me. And so it's great, use, great news for those of us who know him, you and me, uh, and uh, are called according to his purposes. Because, you know, Scripture tells us he's the vine, we are the branches. If we remain in him and he remains in us, we will bear much fruit. You know, and John tells us, apart from him, we can do nothing. Um, Wide swings in fortune await all of us. You know, at times we'll experience abundance. 
and other times we'll experience devastating hardships. We simply need to tap into the power that enables us to be content. It's a divine power that enables <clears throat> excuse me, us as believers to face our circumstances with confidence and assurance that Christ is with us and that he will not leave us or forsake us regardless of our circumstance. You know, abundance and loss will both pass, but Christ remains the same forever. You know, with him living in us, we have access to a tremendous spiritual resource to help us to face whatever 2024 comes, whatever it brings, come what may, the Lord is with us. So I want to pivot now to point five, um, and that is that a content person is preoccupied with the well-being of others. You know, Paul quickly pivots in, in uh, verses 14 through 19 here uh, to from away from himself and goes to a deeper spiritual issue. You know, sure, in verse 14 he acknowledges how kind it was for the Philippian church to send him a gift, the, the gratuities and the niceties of that. Uh, but a subtle shift takes place when Paul places a spotlight off of himself and back onto the Philippian church and their love and their ongoing love relationship with him and his ministry needs. You know, verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Uh, you know, Paul introduces that transition. You know, if you'd stopped at verse 13, uh, Paul would simply, you know, it was possible that the church could have viewed his comments as the gift was an unappreciated gift, and certainly that wasn't the case. Um, the Philippian church at this time was in extreme poverty. So they gave out of extreme poverty to the ministry uh, of Paul's work. Uh, you know, and he reminds them how faithful they've been over the past 20 years of, of supporting his Christian ministry in verse 16. In fact, he says, you did it again and again and again. And that gave Paul joy, not because of the material benefit, but because of the spiritual benefit that, uh, the, that the gift brings. Uh, look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul assigns credit here to the giver, the Philippian church. You know, other translations use the phrase on, on your account instead of to your credit, to your credit on your account. You know, and we see the word here increases. So your, your account increases with uh, the giving. Uh, it's interesting that this is not a one and done gift, but there seems to be there is a compounding effect that happens that whenever a, a single gift is given, there is more and more growth that comes through, uh, through the spiritual nature of the gift. You know, there's a, another scriptural principle here in play, um, and that is that those who give generously will be blessed. This principle applies to churches, it applies to individuals. So I want to deal with it for just a moment. You know, a church that fails to share materially with others is a poor church. Church could be rich, but if a church fails to share materially with others is a poor church. You know, this idea is taught repeatedly in scripture where we have in Proverbs 11, 24, 25, where it says one person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. 25, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. 
Another proverb, whoever is generous to the Lord, who to the poor, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And there are many others, and I put references to Luke and 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and Acts 20 in, in your notes uh, for you. But there, there are many others, and certainly not limited just to those three extras that I, that I put in there. But all of them point to what Paul's trying to say here. And that is, when you give, it's more than a gift to me. It's an investment in spiritual matters. Paul's heart is to see that the fruit that comes from the ministry work is enabled by the gift. So he's, with the gift, he's looking for the growth that comes as a result of it. It's an investment. You know, verses 18 and 19 uh, say, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God's supply will, ev- will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know, this section of Scripture could be taken to be very transactional in nature. The Philippians gave, Paul received, Paul's now well-stocked, right? Um, if it stopped there, but, but it's much more than a business relationship that we're dealing with here. You know, Paul views the gift as a spiritual sacrifice. You know, he tells the church, I am well-supplied. And in verse 18, he says, it's a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You know, that spiritual sacrifice echoes 1 Peter 2, 5, where he says, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ. Uh, a spiritual sacrifice from a poor church that's being built up to a royal priesthood. Um, and that spiritual sacrifice was being used by God to meet Paul's needs. You know, there's an interesting contrast between verses 4.18 and 4.19, verses 18 and 19. Uh, Warren Wearsby summarizes that contrast by paraphrasing what Paul tells the church. And, and listen close to what, what the paraphrase says. You met my need, Philippi, you met my need, and God is going to meet your need. You met one need that I have. But God will meet all of your needs. You gave out of poverty, but God will supply your needs out of his riches and glory. So we talk about investment. We talk about, hey, this single gift of giving, whether it's uh, out of abundance or out of poverty, you know, God will, God will take that and he'll bless it and he will multiply it well beyond what we can imagine that's being done. But it, it, it can't, you know, in terms of what the scriptural principles was that we were talking about earlier, you know, you, you give and God is going to do the multiplication for it. You know, there's one, there's one way to understand this scripture, or there's a way to understand this scripture is simply teaching. When God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not lack for God's supply. So this assurance is repeated again and again in Scripture and meeting the needs of those who live for Him. It's an unchanging promise. It is all throughout Scripture. You know, and it helps us, it should help us understand as an unchanging promise that the fears that we may have with sacrificial giving are unfounded fears. God's work is funded through the riches of God Himself. 
Um, and those who get to a place where they can unselfishly say, it's the Lord's, use it for God's glory. You know, they've begun to understand and grasp a crucial lesson towards uh, contentment, and that is unselfishness. So I was, uh, I was at the gym earlier this week, as I, as I wrap up here. I was at the gym earlier this week, and, you know, I was talking to a guy when his wife called. And I could hear him talking to her about something that was wrong at their house. And he got off the phone. I couldn't grasp the entire conversation. He got off the phone, and I asked him what was wrong. And he told me that his wife went to take a shower, and there was no hot water in the house. And he said, it's an old hot water heater. You know, I don't, don't really know what the issue is. I said, well, do you have a small wire brush? And he told me he did. I said, well, if it's an older water heater, it might just be that the thermostat is a little dirty and needs to be cleaned off. You know, sometimes on a thermostat, a little crusty film gets on the end of it. And you just need, you need to brush it, knock that crust off, and it'll work again for, for a season. You know, that crust keeps it from regulating the temperature proper, properly. And, you know, you and I can be that way a little crusty. Sometimes we need a, a sermon like this to brush us off. And so, um, you know, sometimes the contentment that we're having Christ Jesus is lost because we forget about that overruling providence of God and that His unfailing power and His promises of meeting our every need are ever, ever present, never changing. You know, I can't, I know for myself, I can't be reminded of that fact enough. You know, God wants us to be like a thermostat, steady in Christ's work. He wants us to be content in all circumstances. He doesn't want us to be a victim of our circumstances. In fact, he expects us to be victors over our circumstances through him. You know, we don't need to be pampered to be content, church. We need to find contentment in the resources that Christ provides. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the message of, of contentment this morning. Lord, thank you for sustaining my voice as we've talked this morning. Lord, I'm sure that uh, we all needed to hear this message this morning. And I'm grateful for it. Father, as we look forward uh, beyond 2023 uh, and into 2024, Lord, uh, may you take the conversations that uh, we started, the statements that we started with, Lord, and just say, Lord, I want to grow in contentment in 2024. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for each and every one of us, long before we ever knew him, long before the Holy Spirit's call on our lives began. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.